Think of the stories you've heard about famous inventions. They usually begin in a similar way with an obsessed inventor tinkering in his lab or a startup company that begins in a garage or a dorm room. They sacrifice everything to make their idea work, and when it does, the inventors become as famous as their inventions, like Gutenberg in the printing press, Edison in the light bulb, or even Steve Jobs in the iPhone. The story of the reel-to-reel magnetic tape recorder is nothing like that. If you're not sure what that is, I'm sure you've seen one in old movies. It's in the scenes that take place in a recording studio or radio station, maybe even in FBI vans when the feds are on a stakeout, recording a conversation in a room they bugged. It's shaped like a large box with two large spinning reels and black tape moving between them. These things were everywhere after World War II, but the tape recorder's success was predictable. It's the way it got to be successful that's strange. The story begins with a GI in World War II named Jack Mullen, who literally came to a fork in the road in Germany and decided to turn left instead of right. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. A few of you may remember this show from a few years ago when it was a music industry interview podcast. The name has stayed the same, but the format has changed. Between the Liner Notes is now a documentary-style show about music. New episodes will be released the first Monday of every month. This episode is about a man named Jack Mullen, who passed away in 1999. Since I couldn't interview Mullen myself, I contacted the Audio Engineering Society, who have allowed me to borrow an interview they filmed in 1988, and I'm very grateful to them. Thanks, guys. When I look at old black-and-white photos of Jack Mullen, taken a few years after World War II, he appears thin, not very muscular, tall, well-groomed, and always wearing a tie. He looks like you would expect someone to look from that time period. He was born in 1913 and grew up in San Francisco. For college, Mullen decided not to stray far from home and enrolled in Santa Clara University. He graduated with a degree in electrical engineering and went to work for a telephone company. In 1941, when Mullen was 28 years old, he decided to lend his engineering skills to the United States Army and enlisted as a private in the Signal Corps. The Army stationed him in London, where he was tasked with solving radio interference problems caused by the numerous radar installations that blanketed England. When working on a project, Mullen would often stay up all night with only the radio to keep him company. Just before the invasion of uh, the continent, I was working uh, late at night, and we used to listen to the radio. And each night, the BBC went off around midnight, but we were working on into the morning. And uh, we'd tune around and find broadcasts from Germany, and we hear these orchestras going so beautifully, you know. And uh, they would segue from one number to another, so you knew it was continuous music. It wasn't just records. And uh, we thought probably Hitler must be having people work all night. The late-night orchestras Molin heard on German radio sounded like they were live and in the studio. As far as he knew, no technology existed that could make recordings that realistic. The only explanation was that Hitler forced full orchestras to play symphonies, one after the other, all night long, every night of the week. Eventually, the war ended, and the Allied powers took over the German radio stations. Jack Mullen was transferred to Paris, France, with a new assignment, but he kept those late-night German broadcasts in the back of his mind. Our outfit moved to the continent shortly after the invasion, and uh, we set up an office in Paris. Well, it had all kinds of big rooms in it, and um, 
we were able to use these as laboratories and things for the kind of work we were doing, which was to follow up what the Germans had left behind, bring it back for analysis and some place to work on it. Jack's new job was to go into Germany, sift through all of their inventions, and see if there was anything the United States wanted to take. One of the conditions of surrender was that Germany had to forfeit all its intellectual property. This meant the Allies could pretty much take whatever German invention they wanted. It would be like if the United States lost a war and the winner could cherry-pick anything they wanted from Silicon Valley. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet and the United States showed up hungry. And they took all kinds of things like ice cake grinders, a machine to wrap chocolate candy, and even a highly advanced manure spreader. It's hard to calculate, but some estimate the value of the inventions were worth billions of dollars. But at this moment in Jack Mullen's story, the Allies didn't know what inventions Germany had. So they gave some people the job of finding out. Jack Mullen's job focused on finding radio equipment and figuring out what it did. And one day, while investigating an abandoned tower near Frankfurt, Germany, he started chatting with a British officer. But in the course of wandering around in this tower, I got talking to a British officer who was there. And um, before it was over, we both found out that we were interested in audio and were comparing notes about it. He said, have you ever heard these machines that the Germans have that they're using in their radio stations? And I said, no. He said, well, it's a tape recorder. It's a, uh, and I described, does it look like this or that? What the British officer described was a reel-to-reel tape recorder called the magnetophone. Jack had seen magnetophones that fit this description before. They had a whole bunch in Paris they'd already tested and found they didn't work so well. So Jack didn't believe the guy. I thought he probably has a tin ear because the way he described it, it's the same machines we've been seeing brought into us. And uh, they certainly aren't any high fidelity by any means. It had a lot of background noise and it had high distortion. As the day wore on, Mullen finished up his investigation at the tower. Finally, the time came to leave. He said goodbye to the British officer, hopped in his Jeep and began the five-hour drive back to Paris. We were going to go back to Paris at the bottom of the hill. If I turned right, I would have been back in Paris that night. If I turned left, I would go to Radio Frankfurt. And coming down the hill, I was trying to decide which way to go. Imagine yourself in Jack Mullen's shoes. You just finished a long day of work, and you have a five-hour drive in front of you. There's probably things you want to do in Paris, like catch up on paperwork, sleep, play cards with the other officers, or there might even be a love interest you'd like to see. And the other option is to follow a tip from a guy that you think is crazy and drive deeper into Germany. It would be a long-shot gamble that would probably result in a huge waste of time. The logical thing would be to return to Paris, but some people can't say no to a long shot. I thought the guy was crazy, and I decided, well, let's take a chance on it and turn left. Despite his better judgment, Jack headed deeper into Germany towards Radio Frankfurt, which, oddly, was no longer in Frankfurt. Within a half hour or so, I was in this little town called Bad Nauheim. The Radio Frankfurt operation had moved out to this town because of the bombings in Frankfurt. And so this is where their studios were. They'd taken over a big old house and were just using the rooms in the house for their equipment. But they'd moved all the apparatus out there and they used the living room as a studio. So it was a pretty rugged operation. The United States military had taken over Radio Frankfurt and had been using it to provide news and entertainment to the troops. The broadcasts were now in English, but since the Americans had no experience operating the equipment, the original German staff was kept around to help run things. So, Jack Mullen parks his Jeep, goes inside, finds the German officer in charge, and asks, I asked him if he had these tape machines that they used on the air, and he said, oh yes, 
And I said, could I hear one of them? And he said, okay. So he took me in and sat me down in a room and he clapped his hands a couple of times or something and a, a German uh, attendant came and clicked his heels and went off and put on a roll of tape on this machine in the back room and I, all I heard was a loudspeaker in front of me and I couldn't believe it. I'd never heard anything like that in my life before. It appears that the British officer Mullen didn't believe turned out to be right. The recording sounded more real than anything he had ever heard before. You see, up to this point, the world had been listening to recordings that sounded something like this. The Armed Forces Radio Service presents the Fibber McGee and Molly Show, a special rebroadcast for all you men and women in the Armed Forces of the United Nations. You can hear the music and understand what the people are saying, but it doesn't sound anything close to real life. The voices sound kind of nasally, and there's lots of pops and static. With the machine at Radio Frankfurt, all of these problems disappeared. So obviously, Jack Mullen was pretty excited about what he was hearing and curious about how it worked. Mullen stood up and walked over to the equipment room to have a look at the machine he was listening to. To his surprise, it was a magnetophone, and it looked exactly like the awful-sounding magnetophones he tested in Paris. He wanted to know the reason why one sounded so good and the other so bad, so he pulled out his camera and photographed the machine's manual and schematics, thanked the German officer, and left. After the long drive back to Paris, he developed the film and began to study it. He discovered that both machines were in fact magnetophones, but the Radio Frankfurt version was a newer model that had one thing different, the type of electricity it used to record. It used alternating current rather than direct current. If you recall the story about the current wars between Nikolai Tesla and Thomas Edison, the two scientists disagreed about what type of electricity was superior. Tesla advocated for alternating current while Edison sided with direct current. Edison even said publicly that alternating current was dangerous and life-threatening and tried to prove his point by using it to electrocute animals in front of large audiences. In the case of recording sound, Tesla's alternating current was superior, and the magnetophone in Radio Frankfurt proved it. After Mullen discovered the secret behind the Radio Frankfurt model's quality, he had an idea. The awful-sounding magnetophones he had in Paris had a very similar design to the Radio Frankfurt model. Mullen believed he could follow the schematics he photographed and modify one of the awful magnetophones using spare electronic parts he had lying around. He spent his free time working on the magnetophone, and after a lot of trial and error, his work finally paid off, and his recordings began to sound realistic. And we tried this, and it worked just like the stuff that I'd heard. Beautiful. Mullen showed his magnetophones to his superiors in the military. For reasons I was not able to uncover, they decided to pass on the technology and allowed Mullen to ship them home. Military war trophy rules clearly stated that soldiers were not allowed to claim radio equipment as war trophies. Yet somehow, Mullen managed to get permission to send two magnetophones back home to San Francisco. The War Department, which is now called the Department of Defense, also limited the size a package could be. It had to be small enough to fit into a mail sack. Magnetophones are too large to fit into mail sacks, so Mullen had to find a way around the size restriction. He disassembled two magnetophones and packed up only the parts he couldn't replace in the United States and 50 reels of recording tape he had been collecting. When he was done, he had 18 packages that fit neatly into 18 mail sacks and shipped them home to San Francisco, not knowing whether they would make it back or not. He wouldn't find out until he himself was sent home. Crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. The news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. The million people sang and danced in the streets. The servicemen and civilian threw dignity aside. This was the time to whoop it up. 
When the war ended, after years of living in Europe, Jack was discharged from the military. When he arrived in the United States, the first place he went was home to San Francisco to see his mother. When I got home to San Francisco, I got out of the taxi that took me home from the train station and um, rang the doorbell and my mother came. The first thing she says is, my God, you're bald. The second thing I said is, uh, how many packages came here? And she said something like 18, which is what it was. The packages containing the magnetophones arrived safely. After catching up with his mother and discussing his receding hairline, Mullen began the long process of reassembling the two machines. His mother found some extra space for her son to set up a workshop in the house. He removed the magnetophone pieces from the 18 packages and replaced the parts he left behind in Paris with brand new American components. As a sound source to test with, he used the final groove of a 78 shellac disc that just repeated over and over. When the groove would repeat, the pop it made had a wide enough frequency range to allow him to accurately test the machines and make some tweaks that improved the performance even more. After some time went by, the two machines were fully reassembled and ready to be shown to America. He threw the magnetophones into the back of his car and began driving around the country, demonstrating them for whatever recording engineer he could find. After bringing them to enough conventions and meeting enough people, a man named Art Crawford took an interest in the magnetophones. Crawford worked with all the movie studios in Hollywood and promised to get Jack a meeting with each of them. So he set up these appointments and took us around from one studio to the other where we uh, would record something that they were doing on a set and uh, play it back to them. And uh, it was interesting the different reactions you got from people. None of these people had ever witnessed it before. They were all impressed with magnetophones, but politics got in the way. Another company named Westrex didn't want to compete with Mullen, so they sandbagged the whole deal by threatening to remove their equipment from the movie studios. Each studio was totally dependent upon Westrex equipment, so the threat was powerful. Eventually, the studios capitulated and they informed Mullen they had no interest in his magnetophones. So, he packed them up, threw them into the back of his car, and drove back to his mother's house in San Francisco. The fates work in interesting ways, and it wasn't too long before another man from Hollywood came to visit Mullen. This man came up from Hollywood who had need for some special work, and we were doing it for him, and he heard this, and he said, this sounds like something Bing Crosby could use in Los Angeles. Can I set up a, an appointment for you to get in touch with them if I go back down? And we said, well, okay, you know, we didn't think much about that. Mullen didn't think too much about it because he had faced rejection enough to know he shouldn't get too excited over every long-shot prospect. He also didn't know that Bing Crosby and his radio show had been in dire need of technology like the magnetophone for a long time. I'll let Edward R. Murrow introduce Bing. Here's a clip from an interview he did with Bing from 1954. If you've never heard of Bing Crosby, you've probably had your head in a barrel for the last 25 years. For one thing, the next voice you hear has probably been heard by more people than the voice of any other person in history. Evening, Bing. Hello, Ed. How are you? Fine. What are you doing? Just killing a little time, waiting for you to cut in here and get to work. Bing, uh, uh, what have you got to show for uh, a half century, almost, of endeavor and hard work? Well, Ed, I got some gold. Not, not money, but some, uh, some gold records here. This little plaque was given me by the deck of people. Uh, on my birthday last year, there's 19 records there that uh, sold over a million. You can see White Christmas there. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. That was uh, 
I think that was 9,000, and then silent night, holy night. And Do you still remember all the titles and tunes? I remember the titles, uh, Ed, but I couldn't <laughs> tell you all the lyrics. <laughs> then I've got uh, all these other ones here, all records that sold a million. Uh, now is the hour, and Tooralooralooral, uh, and Sunday, Monday, and always, and... Uh, Besides making gold records and chatting with Edward R. Murrow, Bing Crosby was also an Academy Award-winning actor and had a radio show called The Craft Music Hall, which had an estimated 50 million weekly listeners, exactly one-third of the population of the United States at that time. It was for this radio show the man from Hollywood thought Crosby might be interested in the magnetophones. Mullen, as he said before, didn't think much of it, why would a man like Bing Crosby have any interest in a machine all of Hollywood already rejected? Well, it's, uh, he was a very busy man. That's Malcolm McFarlane, the editor of Bing Magazine and the author of the 840-page book, Bing Crosby, Day by Day. During the, um, the 1940s, Bing was probably the most famous man in the world. He was the top box office star at the cinema. He was the top record seller, uh, selling millions his radio show, the Kraft Music Hall, was one of the top radio shows. During the war, every weekend he'd be doing something to raise funds for the troops or entertaining troops. And while working with the troops, Crosby discovered that the Armed Forces Radio Service had been recording radio shows to send overseas. They used these things called transcription discs, which is actually what the Fibber McGee and Molly example you heard earlier was. Crosby thought he could use transcription discs to pre-record his show, and this would allow him to edit out mistakes and record many shows at once. Like Malcolm McFarlane said, he was a busy man and pre-recording was smart time management. But there was a problem with this idea. The sound quality of transcription discs was terrible. Despite this, Bing believed that the benefits of freeing up his time and being able to edit far outweighed the loss of quality, so he asked NBC if he could pre-record. And this is where the drama starts. And Bing thought, well, if we can do this for the troops, why can't I do my weekly radio show in the same way? So in 1945, Bing, you know, the most famous man in the world, he just said to his people, look, I really want to transcribe my shows. And NBC said, oh, sorry, we're not going to let you. In those days, none of the big networks would permit it. NBC was concerned that no one would want to listen to poor-sounding recordings, so they said no. Then Bing doubles down. So uh, Bing took an extended holiday uh, from his show and uh, didn't return as usual after two or three months. You have to admire someone who stands their ground like that, but Bing had a contract and he was breaking it. In the end, Kraft served notice on him for a breach of contract and said, uh, you, you've got to come back. And he said, well, I'm not going to. And uh, it all uh, blew up and went to court. They fought in court for a while. A few lawyers were racking up plenty of billable hours. Crosby and NBC were both hemorrhaging money, and then finally, cooler heads prevailed, and the two sides reached an agreement. Bing would broadcast 13 more live shows for NBC. Then he would move his show to the newly formed ABC network with a new sponsor, a radio manufacturer named Philco. Why do you announcers always get so chummy with the listeners? Every time you're going to unload a hunk of commercial. Oh, but Bing, well, maybe I... the listeners don't want to be friends. Maybe they turn their Philco's off as soon as they hear you open up with that. Bing, I just want to tell them... And that's I... another thing. You always tell people to go and see their Philco dealer. Now, if, you, if you're so palsy with our listeners, tell the Philco dealers to go see them once in a while. <laughs> but those dealers have so many new Philco Load models. Load them in a wagon, trot them around, start ringing doorbells, <laughs> spread, get going. I think the listeners like to go shopping. There you go. You never heard anything like the tone and performance of these sensational Philco table radio phonographs. 
They give you a big set performance in a powerful, compact table model that looks like a million and plays like a dream. From the world's largest radio manufacturer, Philco, famous for quality the world over. Crosby was happy with his new radio network and his new sponsor. They were willing to stomach the loss of quality and allow Bing to pre-record, but only if certain conditions were met. The agreement was that if the audience numbers dropped, then Bing would have to go back to live broadcasts. They started recording them in September 46 onto disc, and uh, they had to edit all the stuff onto two discs, which were sent out with most complicated instructions to all the local radio stations. Bing's show started off with a very good audience, then started to drop, and there was a kind of threat that we'd have to go back to live shows. Bing had no interest in doing live shows again. So, as a temporary solution, he used a trick TV and radio shows still use to prop up ratings. Increase the number of mega-celebrity guests that come on. Bing happened to be friends with a large number of them, so it was easy, and it worked in the short term, but he needed a permanent long-term solution. Meantime, Bing had heard about this man called Jack Mullen. So, in mid-1947, Bing got Jack Mullen to come and record one of his shows to see if it was okay. So Jack, not thinking too much about it, tells his friends in San Francisco he'd be gone for a few days, packs up his magnetophones and heads down to Hollywood. To his surprise, an acquaintance of his named Colonel Ranger was also invited to the studio. Mullen first met Colonel Ranger at one of the conventions where he demonstrated the magnetophone. By the time the two met, Colonel Ranger already had a few successful inventions to his name, His biggest was a machine he designed for NBC that could automatically play their famous three-note theme on chimes. Long before meeting with Bing Crosby, Mullen granted Colonel Ranger permission to recreate and manufacture tape machines that emulated the magnetophone in exchange for a promise to design magnetic tape for the machines. Mullen only had the 50 rolls he took from Germany and no way of obtaining any more. No company in the United States was capable of manufacturing it. Colonel Ranger showed up to the Crosby studio with two of his own tape machines. The Crosby show invited the two men to record the show, pitting them against one another so they could compare the results and decide whose recorder was better. Mullen knew what his magnetophones were capable of, but Ranger's were a wild card. Their success was totally dependent on whether Ranger was able to make the magnetic tape. After the show was over, everyone gathered around the speakers to hear what each machine had recorded. Colonel Ranger went first. He hit play on his tape machine. At that point, it was clear to Mullen that Ranger had failed to design the tape. He used a substandard American version, not compatible with his recorders. The sounds that came off the substandard tape were awful. They were filled with noise and distortion and sounded worse than what Crosby was already using. Jack Mullen went next. He hit play on his magnetophone, and the sounds that came out had no noise and no distortion and sounded just like a live broadcast. Crosby hired him on the spot. The result was that I never got back to San Francisco because it sounded so great that they wanted me to go right to work for them. And I did. Mullen's victory earned him a position recording and editing Bing Crosby's radio show. Editing with tape was a brand new concept, so Mullen had to develop all the techniques himself. The editing process was simple, though. The only tools needed were scissors and some adhesive tape. With a few snips, Jack could add or remove entire sections of the show, as well as shorter items like individual words or audience reactions. Accidentally, they invented one editing technique when a comedian named Bob Burns was a guest on the show. What happened that day changed the way sitcoms were made forever. I'll read a quote from Jack Mullen. 
The hillbilly comic Bob Burns was on the show one time and threw a few of his then extremely racy and off-color folksy farm stories into the show. We recorded it live and they all got enormous laughs, which just went on and on. But we couldn't use the jokes. Today those stories would seem tame by comparison, but things were different in radio then. So scriptwriter Bill Morrow asked us to save the laughs. A couple of weeks later we had a show that wasn't very funny, and he insisted that we put in the salvaged laughs. Thus, the laugh track was born. It wasn't long before the Bing Crosby show had a library of over 40 audience reactions. They created sound effects like intense laughter, audience groans, laughter from the orchestra. They even had a few reactions from a fictional lady in the balcony who would make herself heard at a comical moment. All this was made possible by Jack Mullins' two magnetophones. And this is the machine, one of the pair of two that I had. And I'm going to let you hear the kind of thing that it was capable of doing. The little piece of tape that I'm going to play on here was actually recorded in 1947 when I went to work for Bing Crosby to do his radio show, and it still sounds as good as it ever did. Going from affairs at home to tune time, I note that the rhythm airs are cuddling up to their half of the microphone. Mr. Trotter is glancing my way with that, uh, I wonder if Crosby knows how this thing starts look in his eye. <laughs> and on the paper here, it says, come to the Mardi Gras. Oh, I know this one, I think. Let's all go. Mm. I heard them sing, come to the Mardi Gras. It was real in spring, time for Mardi Gras. I saw her there, confetti in her hair, swept along by the throng. It wasn't long till we met, when we kissed my heart beat faster, faster than a castanet. The magnetophones were a success. Crosby loved the ease of editing. Philco and ABC were ecstatic over the show's improved ratings. Everyone was happy, but the show was just a few technical glitches away from not being able to record on tape anymore. Only having two recorders didn't give them much breathing room. Crosby recognized this and made a deal with a company named Ampex, who were developing the capability of manufacturing their own tape recorders. Bing prepaid for 50 machines and cut them a check for $50,000 so they could get started. Once Ampex was churning out tape machines, the whole world wanted one. Radio shows began recording to tape. The music industry began to see a bump in sales from the improved sound quality. Even presidents, especially Richard Nixon, used tape machines to record their conversations inside the Oval Office. No one used transcription discs anymore. Jack Mullen's magnetophones and all the reel-to-reel tape recorders that superseded them changed recorded sound forever. They remained the dominant technology until the late 1990s when computers took over the job. But even the new software mimicked the old editing techniques and borrowed the terminology. It would be easy for someone who did what he did to attribute his success to his intelligence or the fact that he impressed a celebrity like Bing Crosby, or that the Allies were victorious in World War II. But when he looks back, he attributes his success to that day in Germany when he was driving his Jeep back to France and he came to a fork in the road and had to make a choice. That was probably the greatest decision I ever made in my life, was to turn left there and follow the guy's advice instead of just discounting what he said and turning right. And probably never would have, (laughs) could have changed my entire life, and I look back on it. This show was produced and edited by me, Matthew Billy, 
Jason Silverman did the graphics and website. Laura Vandiver assisted with production. Our Bing Crosby expert was Malcolm McFarlane. For more information about him and Bing Magazine, you can visit bingmagazine.co.uk. Thanks again to the Audio Engineering Society for lending us their Jack Mullen interview. For more information about them, you can visit aes.org. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and at our website, betweenthelinernotes.com. Send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Between the Liner Notes.